Acts chapter 12. So next week, bring a dollar or more because we want to have a goal of at least $1,000 next week. Let's pray. Even when we don't see it, you're working. And Jesus, you talked about a seed falling to the ground. It has to die before it can produce fruit and grow. You spoke of your resurrection that you would have to be planted. You would die, but you would resurrect. And God, we have seeds in the ground. And uh, we're praying that as we water them with our tears, as we trust you that, Lord, in due season we will reap the harvest. Oh, God, don't let us faint. Empower the single parent today who's struggling. Empower the person, Lord, who was on schedule to graduate but wasn't able to complete all assignments. May that person not be overly discouraged this morning, even as he or she celebrates with their family about their accomplishments. We lift up the person, Lord, who's looking for work or for gainful employment that they will know that you're a way maker. You've done it before. You will do it again. That we trust you. We submit to you. Have your way. For the person who is in need of healing, oh God, as I looked out and saw Sister Annie this morning and how you healed her body. And there's so many others in this body who can testify that you are a healer. Lord, may your folk not grow weary in waiting on you to make a way out of no way. Whatever else we have, we continue to give to you. Now, Lord, as you speak to us, use this word to build us up and strengthen us. Thank you for our first-time guests who are here today in your house. May they feel welcome. May you encourage them with this word. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, as I was getting dressed, um, sometimes we watch video gospel in the morning. And as we were watching video gospel, Doreen and I, um, a video came on of Marvin Sapp. And Marvin was singing the song, Best in Me, speaking about how the Lord saw the best in him when other folks could only see the worst in him. And as he went into one of the choruses or the bridge of the song, Marvin sings, He is mine. And I am his. It doesn't matter what I did. He only sees, uh, how's it go? He only sees, I got to sing it to remember it. Y'all want me to sing it? You want me to sing it? He only, don't sing it. He is mine, I am his. It doesn't matter what I did. He only sees, sees me for who I am. And so uh, as I was listening to him sing those words, I was like, wow, those words speak about the grace of God in a powerful way where it doesn't matter what I did, he only sees me for who I am. So when we become Christians, the Lord puts our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. They're under the blood, never to be brought back up again. We are under no condemnation. And so that message, he, it doesn't matter what I did. And I began to think back when I used to be, well, I'm a recovering Pharisee. I'm a recovering Pharisee. 
Here's the thing about grace. Grace is offensive to a Pharisee. But it's liberating to a sinner. I think that's what Elder Tyler talked about. Because I used to listen to that song saying, wait a minute, what do you mean it doesn't matter what I did? Wait a minute, hold on, and I'm wanting to put parameters on the grace of God. Who, 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 who am I? No, it doesn't matter what you've done. That's why Jesus died for all that we've done. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's also the thing about grace. No, it doesn't matter what you've done, but grace does care about what we do now. Because grace empowers us. Grace strengthens us. Grace motivates us. Grace is the air we breathe. Grace is the reason for why we live and why we do what we do for the Lord. We've been quickened, made alive by grace. We're new people because of grace. We have a new motivation because of grace now. But I also keep in mind that even though grace changes me to do for him now, gives me a new want to, even the best things I do are still tainted by a fallenness that's a part of me because I'm still attached to Adam. I'm still fallen. Grace. So this series has been encouraging to me. I don't know if it's been encouraging to you, but to talk about the mistakes of men and women in the Bible, but also to see how God's grace superbounded over every mistake, every sin, every shortcoming, because he's good like that. And so the Bible says that those things were written for us, that we can learn from them so that we can live a life that's full of grace and a life that's also full of truth. So today I want to talk about a young man who made a mistake, a young man who failed, but also a young man who experienced the grace of God, probably in a way that you've never heard before. And I want to talk today about the mistake of John Mark. The mistake of John Mark. Some of you may be introduced to John Mark for the first time today. Others of you are familiar with his story, but maybe not all of it. So let's do our best to work through these passages so we can have the mind of Christ. So let's go back, if we can, and in our minds to approximately A.D. 48. Let's go back to A.D. 48, where Paul embarks upon his first missionary journey, A.D. 48. And I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 12, the last verse of Acts 12, verse 25. And the Bible says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So they've come back to Antioch, and they brought John Mark with them. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So here we see the church sending out these two men to be missionaries, the first international missionaries being sent out from the church at Antioch. And the Bible says in verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, 
They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now watch this. They also had John as their assistant. So John Mark is hanging with Paul and Barnabas as their assistant. Now we go over to verse 13. Just eight verses later, the Bible says, Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Ah, he only made it for eight verses. But in the midst of those eight verses, they went to several places by ship. Because some of us may say, now, why did he quit? Why did he leave them and, and go back, not even to Antioch, but to Jerusalem? Why did he give up like that? And Mark is always known as a quitter. You know, we look at him and, man, Mark, he quit, he quit, he quit. Well, before we put him down, let's consider this. If you're going to hang with the Apostle Paul, and go out and preach the gospel to some unreached people groups and even religious folks who would mingle into those communities, you're going to face some big-time devils. And ministry is not easy, especially for those who are faint of heart, because ministry is work. Ministry is hard. And the Bible says in the verses we didn't read in Acts 13 that they ended up encountering sorcerers, in other words, male witches or warlocks. In like the first place they stopped, they met sorcerers. Then another place, they met another sorcerer. So they're dealing with demons. John Mark is like, wait a minute. Time out. I didn't sign up for this. I just want to go out and tell people about the love of Jesus. Yeah, in order to do that, you're going to face some obstacles. And John says, that's not for me. Well, the question is, who was John Mark? Well, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, we see a little bit about him. The Bible says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. This is Paul writing one of his prison epistles. And he says, uh, he's greeting you along with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul is in jail, writing a letter to the Colossians. And while he's there, uh, Mark is with him, and Mark is also sending greetings to the church at Colossae. But what we see from this passage is Mark got back in the game because he's hanging out with Paul. But not only is he back in the game, but it tells us something about him that he is Barnabas's cousin. And Barnabas and Paul are yoke fellows, co-laborers in the first missionary journey. So make note of that. He's Barnabas's cousin. Now we go over to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts 15. The Bible reads, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So Paul is saying it's time to go back out for our second missionary journey. Now Barnabas, verse 37, was determined to take with them John called Mark. So he's determined to take his cousin with them. Verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Barnabas is like, I want to take my cousin, 
Paul was like, no, we're not taking him because he quit on us the last time we went out. If you know missionaries, especially ones who have the gift of apostleship, they can be a little brazen, a little tough as I look at Larry Warren up there. You've got to be because you're facing stuff out there. I mean, whoo, come on. And sometimes, you know, missionaries like all of us, we can be a little too tough. Paul is probably going to regret this moment here because we're going to see a little bit later how he felt about John Mark. But Paul was like, no, he can't come. Verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So we see Paul and Barnabas making mistakes too. People in ministry make mistakes. Don't think that people in ministry are flawless, sinless, and perfect. No, we're full of flaws too. And I love the Bible. It lets us know that God wrote this book through men because it tells the truth about men, even the men that God uses. Because if men wrote this book, they wouldn't talk about people fighting and stuff. They would make them all look good, like the way we come to church. We try to act like we didn't have a fight this morning or last night. But you know y'all were going at it in the kitchen. But anyway! So the contention between these brothers was so sharp. Missionary partners, man, they parted from one another. And so Barnabas, watch these verbs, took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so when Barnabas takes his cousin, it's kind of like, again, he had an agenda. Not necessarily a bad thing, but was it the right thing? Paul was like, no, he can't come with us because he quit last time. Now, that's the truth, Paul, but maybe the young man needed some grace in that moment. Whatever the case, these two great men of God butted heads and they separated. Now, we read of John Mark again in Scripture, thank God, but we don't read of Barnabas again in Scripture. Uh, I wonder how much of this was fueled because he had a vision for his cousin, that maybe his cousin didn't even have for himself. Because when you hang with missionaries, missionaries want you to be missionaries. But maybe John Mark quit because he wasn't supposed to be a missionary, even though his cousin wanted him to be one. Ah, stay with me in this. So Paul says no, and he chooses Silas. He has a new ministry partner. What happens to John Mark? What happens to John Mark? Well, he bounces back from the failure. He bounces back. And, and how do we know? Because between A.D. 50 and 60, remember the first missionary journey was 48. The second missionary journey was sometime after that. John Mark quit on the first one, didn't go on the second one. But somewhere between A.D. 50 and 60, Mark, the one who quit, ended up being the first gospel writer he writes the gospel of Mark. And the gospel of Mark comes before Matthew's gospel, before Luke's gospel, and surely before John's gospel. So his gospel would be the text that the early church would use for a number of years until other uh, 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 writings came along. So Mark began to write. Now, someone would say, now, what qualifies Mark to be a gospel writer? First Peter Chapter 5, verse 13, says that Mark and Peter were friends. As a matter of fact, it says that uh, uh, Mark was a son to Peter. 
So in order to write a gospel, you have to have apostolic authorization so that people would look at it and say, wait a minute now, this guy's writing, but who's covering this person if this person is not an apostle? Well, Mark was an apostle, but he had Peter covering him in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. So he writes with Peter. But watch this, though. Mark also writes his gospel because he was an eyewitness of a few things. Pastor, what do you mean? Go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark wrote because he was an eyewitness of some things. And yes, he had Peter giving him apostolic authorization. But he wrote his account because he was a witness. And watch this. Somebody needs to hear this. He wrote this because he was gifted by God to write. So he writes Mark because he has Peter. He's an eyewitness. I'll show you in a moment. But also because God gave him a gift to write. Here's the cat. I'm going to let it out the bag right now. Some of us quit jobs, quit ministries, because we're not supposed to do those things. We're supposed to do something else that God gifted and wired us to do. Mark was a gifted writer. He was not necessarily a first-string missionary. All of us do missions, but man, I don't know how many of us would last hanging out with Paul. Getting stoned and beat up and all that kind of stuff. That's tough. So Mark's place was not out front. It was with a quill in his hand to write. And some of us are struggling in our careers today because we may be doing something that mama wants us to do. Or daddy wants us to do. Or it's in the family business. But that's not how God wired you. But if you got an overbearing cousin like Barnabas, who wants you out here with me, with us, but that's not what you do. You want to write. Sometimes quitting can be the best thing that can happen to you. Oh, Lord. Mark 14. Mark inserts himself into this gospel in a different way. Look at verse 50. It says, then they all forsook him and fled, speaking of Jesus. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. What in the world is going on here (laughs) in the text? Dudes running down the street naked? What's happening? Well, this is Mark. This is what many scholars think, that this was Mark's way of just saying that he is the author of this particular gospel because this young man is not mentioned in Matthew, he's not mentioned in Luke, he's not mentioned in John, he's only mentioned in Mark, which causes people to say, that that must be the author right there. But, but I know somebody's got a question, and that is, if that is Mark, he's a young man, why is he out at the Garden of Gethsemane but naked? with just a linen cloth around him. Why? Well, let's see if I can help you out a little bit. In Acts chapter 12, we we learn a little bit about Mark's family. Acts chapter 12. Okay, you got it on the screen. It says, Peter was therefore kept in prison. 
but a constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Uh, the Bible goes on to say, y'all got the next verse for me? Okay, that's all. All right. So, so the church is praying for Peter. Listen, Strong Tower. Peter is in jail waiting to be executed because they just killed James, another apostle. So while Peter is in jail, the church is praying that the Lord would have mercy and another leader does not have to be decapitated and martyred. And while they're praying, Peter is sleeping because he's at peace with God. And he knows who's in control of his life, not man. His times are in the hands of God, not men. But the church is praying. They're making constant prayer for him. Well, where are they praying from? Well, let's see here. Let's see here. Um, Mark chapter 14, verse 13. Now, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted. Hold on one second, one second. I missed something. I missed something. Told you we were flawed. I, I tried to tell y'all. I'm looking for the passage. Okay. Go down. It may not be on the screen. I threw y'all off. Look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 12, okay? I got to give you this. The church is praying for Peter. Where are they praying? Verse 12, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So they were praying in the home of John Mark's mother. Don't miss that. Church didn't have buildings then. They met in homes. So they're praying in the house of John Mark's mother for Peter to get freed from prison. And when Peter does get freed, he comes to that house. So he's a jailbird. He's an escaped convict running through the streets of Jerusalem with an orange jumpsuit on and with Jerusalem County on the back. He's running. Where does he go? He goes to this house. Knocks on the door, you know what happens? Rhoda answers the door and thinks it's his ghost. Goes back in and tells everybody, you know, I saw Peter, like, oh, that's just his ghost. But he knew where to go when he got out of jail. Why that place? Because that place was the central gathering spot of the early church. John Mark's mother's house. I'm going somewhere with it, so, so please hang with me. Now we go to Mark chapter 14. Verse 13. Tell me about this house, Pastor. Because what you got to know about this house is that this house was prevalent for the early church. Mark 14. And Jesus sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Jesus is trying to find a place to have the Passover meal, the Last Supper. So he sends two disciples, Go into this town. You're going to see a man with a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes, verse 14. Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So it will be in this room that the Lord would have the Last Supper. Now, watch how they do this. Send two guys out. You're going to see a man with a water pitcher. Follow him into the house that he goes into. Talk to the master of the house. Say to the master of the house, the Lord needs a place to have the Passover. The master of the house does not argue. He immediately says, yes, you can have this upper room. 
Now, in those days, homes didn't have upper compartments. They were usually on one floor and usually built over a cave, or they would dig a basement, if you will. And that's where the animals would say, stay and things like that. So if you had an upper room, that spoke of wealth. And not only did this man have an upper room, it was a large upper room, and it was fully furnished. That's John Mark's family here, I'm trying to say to you. That's John Mark's dad, who's the owner of that house, who was a believer and a follower of Jesus, who said, yes, Jesus can have this upper room. So they used the upper room for the Last Supper. Now, if I had time, I would take you to Acts chapter 1, because when Jesus had ascended, the Bible says that the, the disciples went back to that upper room with Mary and all the women, and they assembled there. The room was large enough for 120 people to be in it. So that became like the central gathering spot. It was the last place that Jesus was before he died on the cross, resurrected, and ascended. So the church was meeting there. Then in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, they're in the house. What house? The upper room, John Mark's house. So when we go to Acts chapter 12, and Peter gets out of pr prison and goes to the house. He goes to what house? John Mark's house, where the early Christians met. So, Pastor, what does that have to do with this boy running down the street naked? I'm glad you asked. Because if we can prove that John Mark's house was the place where the upper room was and where Jesus met with his disciples, let me ask you this. When they came to arrest Jesus, we know they found him in the Garden of Gethsemane because Judas knew where Jesus was going to be. And he was leading the mob to go and arrest Jesus. But what if before he went to the garden to find Jesus with the soldiers, he stopped by the upper room? Because that's where he was last with Christ. Remember when Jesus said, whoever dips with me, you know, is the one who's going to betray me. And the Bible says Satan entered Judas. Judas got up and he left. And the Bible says in John's gospel, it was night. So it's not far-fetched to think he didn't bring the soldiers back to that place first. And getting there, Jesus was not there because Jesus had already left. So if you come to someone's house with a mob, a group of soldiers with torches, that's going to cause a commotion in the community. That's going to wake folk up in the house. And if there's a young man sleeping in the bottom of the house with a linen cloth, linen always speaks about wealth or righteousness in Scripture. This was a rich family with a rich son who really wasn't cut out for the mission field, but he was a writer. He awakens in the middle of the night to all the commotion. The soldiers are out there. Judas is there. Jesus is gone. So they go to the garden. This young man gets up and follows them to the garden of Gethsemane. And all he does is wraps a linen cloth around him because I guess he slept in the buck. Whatever. I ain't going to ask for a show of hands out here. Okay, y'all playing with me. I grew up in Baltimore. And every now and then the police would be called on my street. Every now and then the police would have to come to my house. Every now and then. And when the police come, I don't care if it's late, 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, you getting up to find out what's going on in the neighborhood. And you come outside in your pajamas being nosy. What happened? Who they got? Why, 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 why they got Boogie over there in the cuffs? What's going on? I'm just trying to say John awakened, went to the garden, 
and they saw him. The Bible says all the disciples fled. And when he tried to run, they grabbed his clothes. Here's grace. That's embarrassing if you ask me. I'm running down the street, no clothes on. But when you're growing in grace, you can share about the things of your past that are very humbling and humiliating. Because, you know, you're just happy to be there. You know, whether you're there, you're just happy to be there. And he writes about it. He writes his gospel. So what goes on after that? He, he writes his gospel, and then later in life, as we close, we got to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now we're around the time of 66 and 67 A.D. Paul is in jail for the last time. He's about to have his head cut off by the Roman government. What would be going through your mind before you go and meet Jesus? Maybe you're thinking about some things that you wish you could get right that maybe you did wrong. Maybe there's some relationships you want to try to reach out to and try to get right. Because you're about to meet the Lord. And that's kind of what's going on with Paul as he's in this dungeon, in this jail cell. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 says, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly because everybody in jail wants somebody to come visit them. He says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Then he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. See how it kind of comes full circle where earlier in AD 48, no, we're not taking this young man with us. He quit. He didn't have what it takes to be out here on the mission field. But later, Paul tasted Mark's life through the gospel of Mark. Later, he tasted his life to the point where Mark was with him in jail as he wrote to the church at Colossae. And now Paul is like, you know what? Before I go and meet the Lord, Timothy, bring Mark with you. Because he's useful to me. Useful, that word just means he's helpful for me. How can Mark help a man who's on his deathbed about to die? How can he help him? I think he can help him based on verse 13. Paul says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books, especially the parchments. So he said, I want stuff to read. So you know how you can help me, Timothy? Get my cloak. Bring the books. Oh, oh, and don't forget, bring Mark with you. Why? Because Mark is a writer, and every writer has books. Because if you bring Mark, I want to see him, and I also want to see some of the books that he has. You see this man saying, I want fellowship from a young man that I once was harsh with. There's grace at the end of the story. For John Mark, and of course for Paul. And my question is, I wonder if John Mark made it to Paul before Paul was executed. We'll never know. But you see the heart of the preacher. Pastor, what's going on? A man who once made a mistake by quitting was now useful and profitable to Paul. And failing as a missionary 
was the best thing to happen to Mark because it revealed to him that he was supposed to be a writer. Some of us are just one failure away from walking in the purpose that God has for us. Grace allows you to look at things differently. And you might be failing at something because you're not supposed to be doing that. There may be something God put in you that somebody says, that ain't going to make no money. But it's not about the money. It's about obeying the Lord and doing what he's called you to do. Some of us are called from the mainstream into ministry. And we're afraid to go because I don't know if I can do that. But when you wake up in the morning and you punch that clock and you do, you're like, there's more, there's more. Ah, boy. Would you stand to your feet as I pray with you and pray for you? He can redeem your mistakes. He wants to be the one who shepherds your life. Not even your parents, your cousin, your pastor. He may lead you in a place that people don't understand. But you can still be useful. You will be useful in that place. So maybe what you have to do is go back to the one who made you and say, Lord, what do you have for me? Let's pray. God, thank you. Wow, this is some heavy stuff. Thank you for using John Mark's family, a wealthy family, to take care of Jesus and the disciples and to take care of the early church. Thank you for people in this church who use their resources to bless other folks, who open up their homes to the church to bless the body of Christ and even strangers. Thank you, Lord, that when you bless us with wealth, you expect us, Lord, to be people who are active in good deeds and good works for your kingdom. Thank you for everyone who has opened up their home the way John Mark's family did. Thank you for every cousin that means well and is protective of us, even willing to break up with a dear friend for us. We pray, God, that we would so lock in with what you have for us that we can speak up and say, this is what I believe God wants me to do. Will you support me in it? Lord, we learned from Paul and Barnabas's sharp contention how not to do things. Sometimes, Lord, we're so busy talking, we're not busy listening. We're so busy trying to get off our opinion. We, we want to be understood without seeking to understand. Would you heal broken relationships, even brought about by ministry? where we had good intentions, but we got carnal. We got in the flesh. We made it about us. Forgive us, God, and would you please mend broken relationships. And finally, Dad, I, again, I pray for that person who, who feels like they failed in something, and it just may be that's not what they're called to do. Help them, Lord, to find that thing, that calling, that sweet spot. So bless every writer, every painter, every mechanic, every missionary, every preacher, every doctor, every teacher, every student, bless. Now unto him who is able 
to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Have a blessed day in the Lord. And next week, special offering. Don't forget, next week, special offering.